I'm Noah Kubernick, and this is the Face of the Earth podcast. Today I'll talk with Mr. Felix Morka, the Executive Director of the Social and Economic Rights Action Center, a housing advocacy organization based in Lagos, Nigeria. He'll tell us about ongoing unrest, protests, and police brutality happening throughout Nigeria, as well as how we can help the situation on the ground. Can you hear me, Felix? Yes, I can hear you. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm sorry we had trouble connecting there for a second. Yes. Uh, do you think, to, to get us started, do you think you could tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do? Um, yes. Um, my name is Felix Morka. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I'm a human rights lawyer. And I serve as the executive director of the Social and Economic Rights Action Center, CERAC. CERAC uh, is a human rights organization concerned with the uh, promotion and protection of economic, social, and cultural rights in Nigeria. Uh, we were founded in 1995. Um, following my um, Harvard Law School LLM uh, Master of Laws research uh, that looked at ways in which uh, civil society organizations may uh, propagate economic and social rights, uh, rights like you know, the right to housing, the right to education, uh, you know, uh, and so on. And um, in about 1997, we, um, you know, I came back into Lagos uh, to set up um, the office here in Lagos. And since then, we've uh, engaged in uh, promoting uh, knowledge about these rights and engaging with uh, governments to defend the rights, especially uh, in the area of housing, um, you know, around the city on behalf of uh, Nigeria's, you know, urban poor, uh, who are in their millions, you know, scattered in well over 210 slums now, uh, currently. In the country. Wow. Yes. Now, did you did you establish the CERAC office in Lagos? Yes, I did. I'm the founder of CERAC and uh, the executive director as well. Yes. Do you think that you could tell me a little bit about what has been happening in Nigeria for, I guess, the past three weeks or so? Yes. Um, over the last few weeks, um, young people in Nigeria the youth, uh, basically called for a nationwide uh, peaceful protests against police brutality. Uh, in particular, uh, they demanded uh, that the government disband an organization of the police called uh, SARS, the Special Armed Robbery Squad of the police. So their demand was for the police to disband uh, that um, organization because of its, you know, incredible, incredible uh, violence against uh, the people, against, you know, citizens, especially young people who are, you know, often, you know, arrested, detained, brutalized, killed without any form of accountability. Uh, so that was the immediate, you know, cause of the, um, you know, widespread protests in the country. SARS has been around for many years, is that right? SARS. Oh, yes. SARS has been around for many years. It's been 
Um, I, I don't recall the year exactly it was founded. It was, you know, set up as a unit of the police. But, you know, SARS has been around for at least, you know, well over, uh, you know, a decade and a half, say about 15 years. These protests, are we talking about, is it a nationwide movement or are you seeing protests being centered in, in northern Nigeria, southern Nigeria? Um, no, it's not a movement as such. It, it, it was actually a spontaneous, uh, you know, protest that erupted based on, you know, very recent, you know, really violent shootings of, you know, uh, some individuals by that unit. Now, by SARS. By SARS. Now, this happens all the time. I mean, it happens, everyone who lives in Nigeria knows. SARS is notorious for its brutal, you know, uh, killings of innocent citizens, uh, of people who are suspected to have committed crimes that does not, in fact, you know, even attract, you know, I mean, a month's imprisonment, but are shot dead by, the, by SARS because they have absolutely no regards for the basic, you know, human rights of, of, of their victims. So they're seen as above the law. Completely above the law. No, no accountability of any sorts. And, you know, just absolute impunity. I mean, they, they carry on uh, without respect for anything, for human life, for their own uh, rules of engagement, for, you know, uh, their own police uh, act, the police, the laws that set up the police and that, you know, grant powers to the police. They just carry on without any sort of restraint. And I think that's really what got the young people uh, protesting at this behavior. Often we see protests that might be set off or or pushed over the edge by a specific maybe shooting or a specific event of some kind. Was there a specific event that happened or was it just sort of a cumulative boiling over of this frustration that you're describing? Yes. Uh, well, there were specific events, you know, that went back to back uh, where certain individuals were shot and killed by SAS officers. Again, you know, in, in, in broad daylight. So footage of this shooting, you know, went viral uh, on social media. And that was the immediate trigger for, for the protests. Yes. We've talked a couple of times about this in the lead up to this interview. And you've told me about a lot more happening than, than just protests. You've told me about warehouses with uh, COVID-19 relief supplies being discovered, of course, there have been instances of police or, or, or military personnel being dragged out into the street and killed. Um, can you tell me sort of what has, so these started as protests, but now they're, they seem to be much more than that. Can you tell me what else is going on in terms of these, these resources, these COVID-19 supplies have been found? Um, I'm assuming that we're continuing to see violence by police, but it also seems, like I said, there have been some situations of uh, police being killed by mobs in the streets. So can you tell me a little bit about how this has grown to beyond the protest that it began as? Uh, yes. As I said, this began as a protest to end uh, SARS, uh, this, you know, really terrible police, you know, formation. Uh, but once the protest began, uh, you know, after a few days of a protest that was, you know, remarkably peaceful, uh, the young people who were, you know, uh, leading the protests 
were very well organized. I mean, I think they, they got global uh, applause for the order, for the you know peacefulness and the orderliness of the protests. They had placards, they, they gave interviews, they marched you know, through the streets. It was completely violent free. Now, trouble started when suspected state agents, agents who were themselves either uh, linked to the police or linked to other state authorities, began to hire uh, you know, this group of you know, uh, young people you know, we call them area boys in Nigeria. Uh, otherwise, others call them hoodlums. Uh, these are largely uh, comprised of unemployed uh, neighborhood kids, you know, who live in spite of the government, who live, you know, in absolute poverty. I mean, when you hear poverty, we're talking about real, you know, real poverty. Uh, now, they, they, they're in their numbers. Everywhere you look in the city of Lagos, for example, Abuja, all of the major cities in the country, you find them everywhere. Now, the, 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 the suspected state officers began to hire these youths to disrupt the peaceful protests, okay? Now, the, the, the president, uh, uh, Muhammad Buhari, had decided that he was gonna let this peaceful process you know, carry on without a lot of police you know, action and uh, military you know, uh, intervention. Uh -huh. But rather, what they then did, what some of the you know, uh, uh, officials of government did, was to uh, procure these uh, youth, these unemployed you know, youths in the neighborhoods, to begin attacking the peaceful protesters. Now, that was where things got out of control. So the violent uh, attacks by these so-called hoodlums uh, against the peaceful protesters was the beginning of the you know, I mean, wider violence that then erupted. Now, um, as this was playing out, uh, the protesters and their leaders were calling on the government uh, to, you know, come against the, uh, the hoodlums who were attacking them. But they didn't quite get any sort of, you know, uh, you know response from, you know, the police or, you know, other security services. So uh, you then found a lot of clashes between the peaceful protesters who were defending themselves against the uh, so-called hoodlums uh, who were attacking them. And then it got to a point then that the hoodlums decided it was, you know, uh, time for them to help themselves. So that was where they then went wild, began to, you know, burn uh, public, you know, property, destroy, you know, any asset, quite frankly, uh, targeting, you know, uh, some individuals, uh, you know, destroying public buses, you know, burning, you know, media houses, uh, so it, it, it just descended into widespread indiscriminating violence. They were attacking people in the streets, uh, smashing vehicles, uh, targeting police you know, stations, uh, even targeted you know, several prisons around, around the country uh, and managed to free prisoners in some of those prisons and you know, attacked police stations, burned them down, uh, looted you know, the armory uh, you know, uh, of many of those stations, so it, it just uh -huh. became a free-for-all kind of, you know, uh, orgy of violence uh, by these, um, you know, uh, hoodlums. So is it, would it be accurate to say that the national government decided it was going to allow the protests to continue? But the, whether it be 
I don't know if it's at national or state level or local police forces saw enlisting these other people as a way to beat down the protesters without officially beating down the protesters? That is correct. I mean, it, it was done in a way to evade, you know, any sort of uh, responsibility for for disrupting the protests. So they thought they, they but, do it by proxy. So the hoodlums were really more or less uh, like the proxy that was, you know, um, used to uh, interfere with the protests without uh, that reflecting directly on the government. Because, of course, that gives them all the plausible deniability uh, that was possible. Uh, which is exactly what happened. So when these things you know, started, even though uh, we had footage of state, you know, um, uh, uh, some of the secret police working with the thugs, showing them what to do and actually mm -hmm. ferrying them in, in official vehicles. I mean, the state, you know, continued to deny um, any knowledge of these, um, you know, uh, collaboration with, you know, between the, between the state and, and the, and the, and the so-called hoodlums. Now, I want to clarify, are you saying that they were sort of enlisting these young people in large groups, or were they enlisting small numbers to sort of try to turn the existing protests violent or uh, incite them to maybe do something like attack a police station so that then police could respond? Um, it, it's unclear, really, but I, I, I think that you know um, what we believe and what we know uh, to be true is probably a mix of both, uh, because it started as you know state officers leading small bands of thugs to attack you know the protesters. I mean, there, there are footage all over the place uh, uh -huh. that show that uh, them you know uh, picking them up and taking them to places where they needed to confront some of the peaceful protesters mm -hmm. to disperse. Because what happened was that in many instances, these thugs working with uh, some of the state officers were clearing some of the roads that peaceful protesters had in fact barricaded. Because part of the peaceful protest, quite frankly, was that you know, uh, they were also you know, uh, you know, erecting, if you will, barricades on you know, major highways just to uh -huh. impede you know, movement and to you know, escalate uh, the, uh, the pressure on the government to consider uh -huh. the demands they had made, um, you know, to the government. So you would then find these talks working with, you know, some suspected state officers, uh, you know, going around the city, removing those barricades and attacking the peaceful protesters who, you know, erected them. Um, so that was the beginning of the uh, disruption of the peaceful protests, which then escalated to, you know, uh, degenerated to this, you know, widespread uh, violence. Um, now, yes, some have argued that uh, this was all done to uh, create the sort of, you know, social anarchy, which we witnessed, um, so that that would then justify uh, the intervention of uh, the police and the army, uh, you know, to use violent force uh, to quell those, you know, violent protests, and then put an end to uh, both the peaceful protest and, of course, the uh, violence that had erupted. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, depending on who you talk to, people uh, generally, I think that's, that's the, uh, the widely held, uh, you know, uh, understanding of, of what transpired. That this was done deliberately to subvert the, the, the protest, but also uh, to create, you know, the kind of atmosphere uh, that would then justify 
uh, the kind of thing we saw at the Lekki Gate, where soldiers, in fact, went to open fire on, on these uh, peaceful protesters. Based on what you're telling me, if they were initially enlisted by police or state agents, and they're now helping to break into prisons, attack police stations, it sounds like this has backfired <laughs> yes, on, the, on the police. Is that correct? That, that's absolutely correct. I mean, it, it, it's, it backfired because, you know, um, you know what, what happened was that as soon as the, uh, the people, the thugs and the hoodlums that were working with them, I mean, of course, they, 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 they were working in small groups, right, in, in different parts of the city. But that then, the, the atmosphere of violence, you know, encouraged, you know, other thugs and other hoodlums, you know, around the city who were not necessarily working with, you know, these uh-huh. officers to also become violent. So when it then became, you know, I mean, when the violence became widespread, of course, the, 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 those who were instigating the violence themselves lost complete control of the you know, violence that then erupted you know, around the city. So it was no longer violence by the individuals they were working with. It was now, you know, I mean, an audio of violence. Everyone who wanted to be violent became violent. And then it became completely uncontrollable. And that's where you now saw that, you know, police uh, barracks and police stations around the city, around other cities in the country became, you know, uh, prime targets uh, for, for, for arson and for uh, looting and, and destruction. Because of your work with Serac, you're talking about uh, people from basically settlements, really low-income areas in a lot of different cities in Nigeria. But you have firsthand experience working with Serac with these communities. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Many of the urban poor are informal settlements um, in Lagos and elsewhere. Yes. So have you been sort of in those communities, in those settlements, since all of this has been happening? Yes, I have. Uh, matter of fact, um, I did spend quite uh, a good amount of time um, uh, yesterday, uh, you know, uh, going through some of my communities uh, to, you know, speak with people there, uh, young people, some of the uh, leaders in the community, just to uh, get a sense um of what transpired and how this, you know, impacted uh, the, uh, the the communities. Uh, tomorrow uh, at, at eleven tomorrow morning, we're also uh, continuing that engagement. We have a large meeting uh, scheduled for tomorrow uh, to discuss some of these um, developments and the impact it has uh, and implications it has for for the communities and uh, some of the ongoing struggles and, and campaign for. Uh, you know, government to you know uh, again uh, you know improve uh, the conditions of of of, of living uh, within those communities. So yes, we're going around now uh, after the fact to you know uh, observe uh, what's what's happened and you know how this may have affected some of the work we do uh, in our communities. The government agreed to dissolve SARS. Is that correct? That that is correct. In, 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 yes, and they did announce. Uh, you know, a disbandment of, of SARS. It was was announced, uh, you know, again, to accede to the demands of the protesters. Did that result in a change? Did it change anything kind of on the ground? Was it seen as 
actually addressing the problem or? No, it didn't change much because um, despite the announcement by the government that they were dissolving SARS, uh, the protests continued. Um, now, um, they, 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 according to those who are the organizers of the, of the protests, uh, they said they wanted something more than just an announcement because it, it wouldn't be the first time that you know the Nigerian government you know would announce the dissolution of SARS. That was done, you know, in the past. Uh, and really? then as soon as people, you know, uh, go back to bed, uh, starts with the, you know, all over the place. So this time the young people decided that they were not gonna, just going to take an announcement. They actually wanted to see the actual demobilization of, of that unit uh, around the country because they also had demanded that all of the officers who had served uh, with SARS be put through some sort of, you know, uh, psychiatric, psychological evaluation. Uh, which was also accepted by the government. So they said that they were going to hold their ground in the streets uh, and, you know, monitor uh, the implementation of, you know, some of those uh, uh, decisions or changes, uh, you know, as it, uh, uh, concerning SARS. But now I think that that's part of where the, the protests and the organizers, you know, uh, may have made some uh, miscalculation. Uh, because, you know, it, it, to me, I mean, as a veteran organizer, I was, you know, involved in the pro-democracy movement that ousted the military uh, government from, from power. I was legal director of the civil liberties organization. So we were the organizers of the, you know, uh, revolt against the military dictatorship of the late 80s and, you know, uh, through the 90s. And one, you know, uh, strategy that, I mean, one lesson we learned back then is that in a protest cycle, you take, you know, opportunities and build on them. You take them, you know, uh, yes, you, 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 you pile the pressure in the streets, but then when the moment, you know, uh, uh, becomes available, you, it's advised to take, you know, the part of dialogue and discussion. For example, I mean, you know, one thing they might have done differently would have been to take the government's announcement to make more process demands. For example, I mean, if you say government should disband SARS and that all of the officers should be, you know, uh, uh, evaluated for, you know, mental health and all of that, you know, that does not take a day to accomplish. It's a process. You know, I, I would have said to, you know, the government, okay, very well. Now, whatever processes, panels, commissions, whatever mechanism you choose to, uh, adopt to, you know, uh, implement the decision to, to end SARS and to, uh, you know, uh, carry out some of these evaluations. We would like to be appointed, you know, to monitor and to serve on those uh -huh. committees or those panels or those commissions or those, you know, investigative, you know, uh, uh, processes so that Pro they can be there. Provide civilian oversight. Some sort of oversight to monitor and oversee, mm -hmm. you know, and ensure that this is done. But to stay in the street and hope to stay in the street until all of these things are done, I mean, it was somewhat unrealistic. I mean, because, you know, uh, the country had, you know, completely ground to a halt uh, because of these protests. Uh, and yet the protesters were not, you know, uh, taking any steps to, uh, I think, sort of engage the government in some sort of discussions that would then lead to, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the implementation 
of the decisions that the government had made. I think that, you know, I mean, uh, this is my own, you know, thinking that maybe they, they ought to have, in fact, taken some of those steps rather than uh, remain in the streets, because that then provided the opportunity for uh, some of the counter moves by the uh, by, by state officials who then, you know, came after them and began to disrupt the protest and then created the atmosphere that now led to this massive you know, wave of violence. Uh, and now, because of the violence, some of the key issues they had presented, some of the key demands, you know, are no longer as of today, you know, I mean, at the top of, of you know, public discourse. People are not talking about all the other, uh, you know, things that have, you know, developed since then. For example, you mentioned the COVID reliefs, which were found in many of the warehouses. You know, yes, these young people, uh, the so-called thugs and hoodlums, you know, uh, began to, uh, you know, identify these warehouses where massive consignments of food items, you know, were kept. Now, these were food items that were either purchased by the government or donated by the private sector uh, for distribution to, you know, I mean, the, the poor and those who needed, you know, help um, as a result of the COVID-19 uh, lockdown. But these food items were locked, you know, up in warehouses. And even mm -hmm. those who looted them found later that some of the items were already bad, had gone bad, and were no longer, you know, fit for consumption. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that's really changed a lot of the uh, narrative. And it was no longer just about, you know, SARS. I think it then raised, you know, the broader questions of just, you know, the, the terrible leadership and the whole lack of, you know, responsible leadership and, and the failure of leadership. And... And the, and the lack of empathy, the lack of, you know, uh, uh, you know, responsiveness, you know, by the government uh, to the pain, you know, uh, of people generally. So I think you just brought up broader issues of, you know, terrible government that we, we've, we've had and we continue to deal with as a country. I see. Yes. So it's about the government as a whole at this point. Yes. It's no longer about the police. It's, it's also not about, about the government. Now, if you see some of the... Um, uh, footage I shared with you, some of the links, especially the ones from today, you can see that uh -huh. our officials have almost learned nothing. I mean, all of the things that's happened in mm -hmm. this past few weeks is lost on them. Now, if you mm -hmm. watch a few of those clips, you'll see uh, the Lagos House of Assembly, which is the Lagos uh, State Legislature, uh, where they were having a debate, uh, discussion of, you know, the past uh, events of the past few weeks. And uh, the speaker, of the uh, legislature uh, called for a minute, uh, a one minute you know, um, silence uh, in honor of those who were killed, uh, you know, according to him accidentally or who died you know, in the course of this protest. But added that the one minute silence was certainly not for those who were killed by the police. I mean, this is the head of the parliament in Lagos State, you know, making a distinction between the groups of citizens he thought deserved, you know, uh, the honor of a minute silence, and those uh -huh. he thought didn't deserve it. Now, to him, the so-called hoodlums didn't deserve, you know, who were shot by the police or by the army did not deserve that honor. Now, uh, Noah, fact is, these, you know, so-called hoodlums. I, you know, if you, if you watch my language, I keep saying so-called hoodlums because I don't call them hoodlums. These are citizens of this country. As a uh -huh. pro-democracy organizer from the late 80s you know, and the 90s, I can tell you that I regard these so-called hoodlums as, the, as the, the true heroes of our democracy. 
they were the ones. Now, when I say they, I mean, of course, the older generation, perhaps the, the parents of this current uh, you, know, uh, you know, youth. Uh, they were the ones who were in the street. They were the foot soldiers of the movement against military in the, in the 80s and in the 90s. 80s. These were the people who, you know, I mean, supported, worked closely with the labor, you know, unions, with the human rights and pro-democracy, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, civil society organizations and the student movement to, you know, fight the military, uh, you know, out of power in Nigeria. And by the way, these same so-called hoodlums, you know, constitute the youth wing of all of the political parties in this country. So when elections come huh. and you hear politicians talk about the youth wing, they, they really are talking about these hoodlums who obviously have capacity to do violence. They are the ones who are employed by the politicians in this country to, you know, snatch ballot boxes, to, you know, uh, attack political opponents, to kill and to mm. maim and to do terrible damage during elections. Now, during that electoral cycle, they call them, you know, I mean, they, they, they call them youth and, you know, members of the youth wing of the party. But after the of election, course. you know, they, 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 when they, are, they think them to be completely... Well, then it's back to who Then they become hoodlums. And they become uh -huh. targets of, you know, uh, widespread, you know, uh, you know, just killing by the police. So I, 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 have, I have, you know, very strong views about that. And I think that as I tweet, uh, tweeted just a few days ago, I'm like, the, you know, any, any discussion of restructuring this country must begin with restructuring the lives of these so-called hoodlums to give them, you know, economic opportunities, give them a reason to, you know, get a sense of belonging uh, to this country. Now, consigning them to the, to the fringes of the city, Mm -hmm. where they are completely socially, economically excluded from everything, uh -huh. you know, from, you know, a means of livelihood, from any sort of support network, from any sort of welfare, you know, social safety, you know, uh, you know, programs. That is time bomb. Because, you know, as we have just seen, these boys are, they are citizens, they are mobile, they are there, you can't wish them away, you know, and you don't expect that, you know, they will continue to uh, just follow the rules that you set when you right. do nothing to care for them and to ensure that their, their, mm -hmm. their welfare is also, also made by the state. Can you tell me if over the past three weeks or so, have, have things died down a little? Are they just as intense as they were two weeks ago, a week ago? What's happening at this moment right now? Now, things have died down quite a bit, you know, uh, quite a lot, uh, if I must say. Um, in Lagos, <clears throat> life is beginning to uh, return to normal. Uh, the state is making efforts to clean the streets that's been littered with, you know, all kinds of debris from, you know, the carnage, you know, from the burnings and, you know, all of the damage to property. So they're cleaning the city and the city is beginning to run again. Um, you know, and we're not, we haven't recorded any major acts of violence um, in the last few days. Um, so it's been, it's been an airy calm uh, over Lagos. And, um, uh, but the only activity we hear about now is police uh, going in into certain neighborhoods um, to try to find some of the looted, you know, items. Uh, in some neighborhoods, they conduct house-to-house -house, uh, searches, uh, hoping to find these, you know, things that they say were looted by, by these, um, you know, young people. Um, but other than that, uh, things have been mostly quiet um, in the last few days, but in Abuja, We've had, you know, uh, a few reports of, um, again, 
uh, you know, widespread looting and attacks uh, in certain neighborhoods. And as I said uh, to you, I think in a you know um, discussion a, few, a couple of days ago, uh, we also witnessed quite some disturbing patterns of uh, you know selective targeting of victims uh, in Abuja, where uh, you see you know video footage and media reports of thugs you know going around neighborhoods, um, you know deciding on who to attack and who not to attack, and you know a lot of people from the south of the country. Uh, were targeted and their businesses looted, uh, whereas uh, businesses that belong to people from, you know, generally from the north, um, you know, from the, you know, uh, ethnic, uh, the house of and ethnic communities were, were spared. Now, um, those are reports which, you know, have spread, you know, uh, quite widely, you know, in the country, but, you know, a lot of uh, counter moves have been made as well by the government to discourage, you know, this sort of ethnic uh, targeting because in Lagos as well we had uh, clashes uh, erupt between uh, the uh, you know Hausa uh, you know hoodlums and the <laughs> largely the you know uh, Yoruba ethnic uh, hoodlums you know uh, here in Lagos and but none of that I think um, got any traction uh, thankfully and um, people have been uh, intervening to ensure that it doesn't, you know, go in that, you know, direction, because that would be obviously uh, devastating if, if that were to, you know, spread any further. My understanding is that you have, you have cities where you have communities of different ethnic groups and religions in close proximity, but you also overall in Nigeria as a country have predominantly sort of Muslim Nigerians in the north and Christian Nigerians in the south. Is that, that is correct? correct? Yes. So there's also the danger of this um, ethnic violence, religious violence, et cetera, now that kind of the floodgates have been opened in general. Yes. I mean, I think that's that's why I brought up the point. And I, I think we are all very nervous that um, this does not um, spiral, you know, out of control um, because of the, you know, uh, attacks very you know, almost, you know, targeted attacks we, we saw in Abuja and, you know, in, in parts of Lagos. Um, but um, our hope is that it doesn't escalate because that would be, you know, a, a complete disaster. I mean, it, it reminds us of the civil war, which um, uh, the country fought, you know, in, in, the, in the 60s and early 70s. That was, that began with some, you know, military coup uh, that uh, disproportionately targeted uh, people from, you know, uh, you know, a certain ethnic group, and then there was the counter coup and the counter attacks that eventually led to, you know, uh, the civil war, you know, in which more than a million people were killed. So no one in this country wants to go back, you know, in time to that, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, prospect of a civil war. So, you know, uh, I think that the government itself has now realized that, you know, uh, the, the the tensions are quite real and uh you know capable of you know uh, degenerating into a more serious severe uh conflict you know uh, along uh both class lines and along ethnic and religious lines so everyone i think is very conscious now of you know uh you know ensuring that this does not um, uh, happen i guess the hope is that some of what the protesters were asking for initially is what actually comes to fruition and then you know that that 
results in, in general, there being less of this in the future? Well, yes, yes. But I think that we all realize that um, uh, the issues run really deep and that the NSAS protests were just uh, a flash in the pan uh, of, you know, something much deeper, you know, more complex and more intractable. I mean, these problems have been here with us, you know, since um, we became independent in 1960. And, you know, successive governments have, you know, only paid lip service to the whole idea of uh -huh. uh, building, you know, uh, the, the basis for some sort of, you know, uh, sense of, of fairness, of equity, of, you know, uh, uh, just, you know, justice, uh, generally. Uh, the impunity in the country is, is you know, cries to the highest heavens. Not just the impunity of the police, the impunity of the politicians, of the legislators, of the, you know, judicial system. I mean, people just do what they want. I mean, there's really no, I mean, if, I, if I'm to summarize Nigeria, I think it's just the complete lack of, you know, um, of, of, of penalty for, you know, wrongdoing and reward for, you know, good, good behavior. I mean, people just, you know, behave as they like. I mean, almost as though there's, they, 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 as though it were a lawless, you know, society. And I think that's really the, the problem. You know, people steal from, you know, public resources and they uh -huh. barely get, you know, any sort of, you know, penalty. And then you go steal a loaf of bread and spend, you know, 12, 15 years in prison. I mean, you know, in a country like that, people steal billions of dollars so, and nothing, nothing happens. They, they throw the streets so, and they, they, they are protected by the police and by, by the state. And, you know, so the contradiction is just, just you know, incredible. And I think that's, that's the deeper current, you know, uh, that's rather... So basically, it's not just SARS that's above the law. It's a problem for all kinds of different public officials. Absolutely. From, from the top to the bottom. The governors carry on like, like gods in this country. Uh, the chairman of local government, the chairpersons of local governments in the country, which is the our own uh, third tier of government, you know, compares probably to your uh, mayors and all that of you know city mayors or okay. you know, uh, something mm -hmm. sort of municipal, municipal government. Yes, you know, they they, they 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 carry on like you know uh, they have nothing to fear in the world. I mean, they just they just carry on with absolute impunity. The problem is that you know you can't govern a country like that. Nigeria is too big. You know, and too important to run on that sort of you know model of you know just some you know uh, you know complete impunity, where you know people are never held accountable for for wrongdoing. Where matter of fact, the more wrongdoing you do, the more you are elevated. You know, uh, almost rewarded for for your corruption and for your you know uh, recklessness. You know, in public office. So SARS is just a a, a symptom of you know deeper problems. Uh, that we face as, as a country. So how would you address that accountability? Well, you know, um, unfortunately, uh, we are now, a, you know, a, a democracy. We have our governments elected periodically every four years. Uh, we run the presidential system of government like you do uh, in, the, in, the, in the U.S. Uh, matter of fact, we copied our model from, from the U.S. Now, what what we have is you know nothing like the democracy that operates you know elsewhere because um during our electoral cycle uh the very people who you know have been in power who have you know access to state you know resources who in many cases uh 
are known to have, in fact, stolen from the public treasury are, you know, invariably the ones who can afford uh, to run for public office because it takes incredible hmm. amounts of money uh, to run for public mm -hmm. office. So you find that, you know, in, in, we have two major parties in the country at the moment. Uh, the uh, All Progressives Congress, which is the ruling party at the national level, at the federal level, and the People's Democratic Party, which was the ruling party until 2015 when uh, they lost to uh, the All Progressives Congress, the APC. Now, the two parties that compete, you know, for power are, you know, populated by, you know, elites who, you know, uh, move from one platform to the other. Uh, my point is that many of those in APC today were previously in the PDP. And as soon as they lose elections or don't get what they, uh, you know, what they seek in their party, they cross over to the APC. So both parties mm. lack any sort of defining, uh, you know, features uh, uh -huh. that distinguish, you know, uh, the PDP from the APC. They're largely the same party. I mean, so it's not about platform at all. It's, it's about, about platform. the parties it, being a mechanism to keep people absolutely. in power. It's not about you know uh, uh, any form of ideology or any sort of you know uh, uh, you know devotion to certain values or principles uh, uh, of any kind. And it's just about you know, like you said, just you know, opportunistic platforms. If you don't get what you're looking for in this party, cross over the next day and you know uh, you know try the other party. So when you have that, then you, you see that there's no real form of control. Uh, in fact, I did an article some time ago that I called, uh, uh, that I titled, you know, who will shut the revolving door? Because it's a revolving door between the two parties. So internal democracy is completely lacking. So the result is that you find, uh, you know, probably the very worst candidate emerge as, say, for example, uh, a candidate for the office of governor in the state, you know, out of the PDP. And another equally horrendous, you know, candidate emerging from the APC because they have the money to, you know, uh, to, to buy up all the influence uh, to run. So at the end of the day, even if you choose, and even if the elections were free and fair, and you voted massively for the PDP and they won, or for the APC and they won, you have two, you know, you have a terrible individual you know, uh, uh, you know, taking the office of governor. Because all uh -huh. of the controls, all of the vetting, all of the internal, you know, uh, mechanism that should ensure that only, you know, decent and, you know, committed uh, candidates emerge from the parties are not there. Because everything is subject to, you know, uh, to money and to uh, influence peddling, uh, you know, in, in both parties. So the, the question you ask is a tall one. But I think that Nigerians are the ones who are going to have to demand a change. In my thinking, the NSAS protest, I think, is probably going to be the beginning of, of this you know, process. Because I think that now that uh, people are out the streets, if you listen to the conversations going on uh, in social media and in the formal media, people are saying, look, our elections come up again in 2023. Uh, they're now saying that the bar will have to be raised. People are going to have to ask very deep questions and demand answers from those who aspire to public office. So we hope that all of these uh, lessons will carry into a more, uh, I think, you know, citizen conscious uh, participation, you know, in, in the electoral uh, cycle uh, that's, you know, coming up in, in, in a couple of years. 
I'm sure there are a lot more, but it sounds like you're describing at least two major issues that are that have created this crisis in Nigeria or are worsening it. One is this poverty and inequality, especially among younger people throughout Nigeria. And the other is the general kind of pervasive corruption across the political system and within party machinery. And my question is, if those are two of the big issues, two of the key issues that you can see from your perspective and from your experience, um, extensive experience, I should say, in, in Nigeria and in politics and society, do you know of ways that people listening to this interview may be able to help? Are there organizations that they could contribute to or news they could disseminate where, you know, their contributions wouldn't just be locked up in a warehouse or something like that, where they could actually make some type of difference? Yes. Um, I think that's, there are, uh, a whole lot that, um, folks outside, uh, you know, this country and other, you know, countries, uh, can do in the international community can do to, uh, assist Nigerians. Um, I think that for one, uh, those who have access uh, to the government of Nigeria uh, should do more uh, to really encourage the Nigerian government uh, to carry out some of these you know, basic reforms, electoral reforms, constitutional reforms, uh, police reform, judicial reform, because you know, mm -hmm. we, we can talk about the police all we want. The, the court systems in this country also don't help any. Uh, at all, the legislature is also completely, you know, lacking in in purpose and in commitment to you know promoting uh, access to to justice and to uh, to good governance. Um, so I think that you know under the military system we had the international community a bit more vigorous in the way they uh, engaged with the government of Nigeria. But I think that under this democracy, I think you know uh, international governments have also. I think pulled back quite a lot, you know, in in the engagement with uh, the Nigerian state, and definitely, civil society organizations in this country have also been decimated. Um, now, you may wonder why, you know, young people simply poured into the streets uh, without a lot of organizational, uh, you know, uh, support and backing, uh, because many of the uh, civil society organizations that were uh, involved in, you know, uh, working on issues of access to justice, uh, civil liberties, uh, police reform, many of them have completely disappeared because of the complete, you know, uh, dry up of, of, you know, donor support. Um, you know, the U.S., uh, you know, uh, government and uh, organizations like Ford Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, used to be very active. The Rockefeller Foundation, the um, uh, Open Society, you know, uh, Foundation. They used to be very active supporting civil society organizations, but they, they've cut back, you know, remarkably. So that many of those organizations have either now disappeared or uh, are no longer able to function as they, as they did. So the gaps that they create is also making policy, you know, brutality and making all of these, you know, problems of impunity uh, even more extreme. And no one is exposing them. It used to be that civil society organizations in Nigeria will go to the uh, both the, you know, African regional uh, human rights system and the UN human rights system to bring complaints of police, you know, uh, atrocities and, uh, you know, uh, official uh, violence. 
before uh, these you know, human rights bodies. But many of those organizations are no longer able to actually carry out some of those um, functions. And so it's created a huge deficit of you know, uh, monitoring, of reporting, and of you know, uh, you know, challenging uh, some of these um, you know, violations uh, by state and state you know, uh, institutions. And so, yes, my, my, my call would be to, uh, again, you know, have those who are able to support uh, Nigerian civil society to, to support them so that we can open up uh, the civic space and the, you know, uh, more, you know, uh, space for civil engagement and for uh, the sort of, you know, interventions that we need to, I think, sometimes, you know, create a buffer between these, um, you know, uh, state actors and, and citizens you know, whose rights are, you know, violated brutally by, by, by them. One thing that comes to mind for me, and if, it sounds like donating money may be sort of a stretch at this point because it's just a question of would it actually get to Nigerians. But you're asking, it sounds like, for kind of donations of, of influence and advocacy um, for people to advocate for Nigeria with, with you know, charitable organizations with U.S. government officials or NGO leadership, things like that. And those are things that shouldn't be very hard for us to do. For example, we could mobilize people around um, writing letters to the U.S. Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, um, advocating for increased pressure on the government of Nigeria to clean up, you know, the the party machinery and, and things like that. Um, I, I'm thinking there are a lot of ways that people would likely like to get involved that sound like they may be what you're looking for. Sure. No, that, that, that would be incredibly helpful because I think that uh, the government has become too, too comfortable under its skin uh, with what's going on. Uh, they simply, you know, embrace time. Time is almost like the, uh, the medicine for every social problem we have in this country. You know, they just wait it out. You know, I mean, oh, yes, they're, they're protesting. Give them another two weeks. They get tired. They go back home and we continue what we do. But I think that's... So they'll really, wait it out till 2023 yes, and, we, and hope that... You know, but I think that the, the people need to understand that people's lives are at stake here. You know, we're talking about the lives of, you know, people. Look at those who have died now and those who are suffering, who've lost their businesses and who are never going to get any help from the states. You know, um... You know, people are going to become more desperate now, uh, given what's going on. It, of course, with all the transport infrastructure that was destroyed in a place like Lagos, um, you go into the streets now, and you see long lines of people waiting for public transportation. That, that's not there. You know, so things are going to become more dire. And the more things get worse, the more, uh, the more fragile, I think you're going to find, uh, you know, that the, 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 the kind of prevailing atmosphere of, of calm can easily uh, become combustible again, um, you know, because of the hardship that uh, people are going through at the moment, yeah. you know. So, yeah, so there are still neighborhoods where uh, people can use, you know, uh, direct relief uh, where it's available. Um, because my view is that some of these young people who do these things, you know, um, one way to get their attention, even when you want to, uh, provide some sort of you know, sensitization to them is to first address their immediate uh, you know, need for food and for some sort of support. And I think mm -hmm. that building you know, affinity between them and their immediate community you know, also uh, can help, which is one uh, role that CERAC is we're thinking about now, that we're going to, in the coming months, 
really work to you know, identify some of the more affluent neighborhoods around uh, uh, many of our settlements uh, to you know, engage the uh, organizations within those communities to parley more, to you know, give more support and identify more with the, with the, with the suffering of, of people in the neighborhoods. Um, because we found that during this violence, certain neighborhoods were spared because there was more, you know, some sort of, you know, um, uh, if you will, cooperation between some of the, you know, wealthier, you know, people in the neighborhood and the poorer people. But the poorer hmm. people were actually even there defending, you know, their own neighborhoods, you know, protecting the police uh, stations within the neighborhood protecting the businesses in their neighborhood, saying, look, you know, I mean, these guys help us when we need help. So why, why do you want to come uh -huh. to our community to destroy their businesses? So you found that that was like a buffer between the, you know, uh, uh, some of the businesses and the ordinary people because of some good, you know, neighborliness and, and relationships. So I think that, you know, it's something we're going to do to uh, try to participate, you know, get into some of this neighborhood where we know we have these young people that are, you know, desperately poor. Uh, COVID may not be as as hectic as it was, you know, a few months ago here. I mean, thankfully, our cases have, you know, gone down quite significantly. But I think that um, if there are resources available to also uh, provide some sort of, you know, uh, help to some of those people, it, it can be a vehicle to deliver, you know, the kind of information and the kind of sensitization that would hopefully discourage uh, this sort of, you know, um, widespread violence. Um, you know, uh, in the future. Felix, the work you're doing is incredible. Um, it, it's very gracious of you to take the time to help me understand a little better what's happening in Nigeria, but being gracious doesn't help you a whole lot at the end of the day. So the next step for me is to try to put together options for people to support you, hopefully contribute to the improvement of the situation in Nigeria and we'll have some of those options and some of that information together soon right. and we can put it out and hopefully our community uh, locally and across the U.S. will be able to contribute to that because it's obvious that that help is needed yes. urgently. Yes, it is. And I just want to thank you again for, for speaking to me about what's happening in Nigeria and um, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much, Noah. I really appreciate this. All Thank right, you. Stay, Stay safe. Have a good night. Thank you. Take care. Bye.